0: Hello, hello! Welcome to Pinky Pod. P-p-p-pow. How are you doing out there? I think we're just not going to waste any time. We're just going to get right to it. And I am recording a little later in the morning today. Well, it's eleven, eleven a.m. If you believe in numerology, that's an interesting number. My cat has now decided to perk up. We'll see if he makes any impromptu audio bombs—not a photo bomb, but an audio bomb. Anyway. I have a two maybe three stories to relate to you this time and maybe we'll do a deeper dive into some of them if you ask me to but first up is the last public execution by guillotine have you heard of this one and a famous link And a shout-out to Jane, one of my listeners, for suggesting this to me on Twitter. That's at PodPinky, by the way. So I got a lot of this information at BelfastChildist.com. Belfast, C-H-I-L-D-I-S.com. And they're talking about remembering the victims. So, Eugene Riedemann, The Last Public Execution by Guillotine, 1939. He was born February 5th, 1908, in frankfurt en Main, Germany, and he died June 17th, 1939, at the age of 31, in Versailles, France. And his occupation was career criminal, and his charges were conspiracy, kidnapping, fraud, robbery, murder, and resisting arrest. Now, he would be considered a serial killer. And there were other executions by guillotine that continued privately, and I will get to that, but this was the last public execution. So as I said, he was born in Frankfurt to the family of an export businessman, and he went to school there. He was sent to live with his grandparents at the outbreak of World War I, and it was during this time that he started stealing. And, you know, I don't know more about that because, admittedly, I have not done a deep dive into these. I'm just relating some stories today. But if I had to guess, probably a lot of people did things during World War I and World War II that they might not have otherwise done. I am not excusing him. Just a commentary that those were tough times, my friends. Later in his 20s, he apparently did serve five years in Saarbrücken Jail. For robbery. So during his time in jail, he met two men who later on became partners in crime. And this was Roger Million and uh, Jean Blanc. And after their release from jail, they worked together to kidnap rich tourists who were visiting France and they stole their money. They rented uh, a villa in Saint Cloud near Paris for this purpose. And I am suddenly thinking of that uh, movie with Michael Caine and Steve Martin which well they weren't serial killers but they were definitely having a con now as far as the kidnapping charges their first kidnapped attempt was a failure because their victim actually struggled too hard for them too hard for them and they had to let them go him I guess it was a guy and in July 1937 is when they made a second attempt with Weedman having made the acquaintance of Jean de Coven, a 22-year-old New York City dancer who was visiting her aunt Ida Sackheim in Paris. And she was impressed by this tall, handsome German. There's actually a quote from her where she wrote to a friend about him. I have just met a charming German of keen intelligence who calls himself Siegfried. Perhaps I am going to another Wagnerian role. Who knows? I am going to visit him tomorrow at his villa in a beautiful place near a famous mansion that Napoleon gave Josephine. Oh, très charmant, no? Oh, this guy apparently was very charming. So during their meeting, they smoked together and Siegfried gave her a glass of milk. She took photos of him with her new camera, which sadly was later found beside her body. And these developed snapshots are what identified him so I guess thank goodness for that but Weedman strangled her buried her in the villa's garden she had 300 francs in cash and four hundred and thirty dollars in travelers checks which the group sent to uh, Million's mistress Colette Trico for her to cash sackheim received a letter demanding five hundred dollars for the return of her niece de coven's brother henry later came to france offering a ten thousand franc reward from his father abraham for information about this young woman it's so tragic that's so sad on september 1st of the same year weedman hired a chauffeur named joseph kufi to drive him to the french riviera where in a forest outside tours he shot him in the nape of his neck. Ow and stole his car and two thousand five hundred francs. The next murder was september third. This is only two days later, after Weedman and Million lured Janine Keller, a private nurse, into a cave in the forest of Fontainebleau with a job offer. Had you to a cave with a job offer. What the yeah. There They killed her, again with a bullet to the nape of the neck, so it's becoming an M.O., and then robbed her of 1,400 in francs and her diamond ring. By October 16th, Million and Weidman arranged a meeting with a young theatrical producer named Roger Leblanc, promising to invest money in one of his shows. Instead, Weidman shot him in the back of the head, took his wallet, which contained 5,000 francs. Now on November 22nd, Weidmann murdered and robbed Fritz Frömer, a young German he had met in jail. Frömer, who was Jewish, had been held there for his anti-Nazi views. Yo, he was in jail for being against the Nazis. Yeah, okay. So once again, the victim was shot in the nape of the neck. The body was buried in the basement of St. Cloud House, where De Coven was interred. Five days later, Weedman committed his final murder. So that's uh, November 27th. Raymond Lesabre, a real estate agent, was shot again in the nape of the neck while he was showing him around a house in St. Cloud. And all he got out of that was 5,000 francs, which I, I have not done the conversion, but I assume that would be a lot more money these days. It was probably a decent amount uh, back in the 30s. So now we move on. I'm just giving you the timelines here to the arrest. Officers from the Surette, led by a young inspector named Primborn, eventually tracked Weedman to the villa from a business card left at the Sabra's office. Arriving at his home, Weedman found two officers waiting for him. He invited them in and then turned and fired three times at them, with a pistol. Now they were un- unarmed, and the wounded Surette men still managed to wrestle Weedman down. Though they were unarmed, and they these boss-ass dudes still knocked him unconscious with a hammer that happened to be close by. <laughs> Badass. The trial then of Weedman, Million Blanc, and Trico in Versailles. March 1939, was one of the biggest ones since that of Henri-Désiré Landru, who was considered a modern-day Bluebeard, and that was 18 years prior. I might have to look that up. (laughs) That sounds intriguing, Bluebeard. One of Wiedemann's lawyers, Vincent de Moreau-Giatry, had indeed defended Landru, so there was a connection. Also present was a French novelist, Colette, and she was engaged by Paris Soir to write an essay on Weedman. Now Weedman and Milion received the death sentence, while Blanc received a jail sentence of 20 months, and Trico was acquitted. Million's sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. And now we get up to the timeline of the uh, execution. So on June 17, 1939, Weidman was beheaded outside the prison St. Pierre in Versailles, the hysterical behavior by spectators was so scandalous that French President Albert Lebrun immediately banned all future public executions and I'm here to tell you all that they shouldn't have been public in the first place but he banned it unknown to authorities at the time a film of this execution was shot from a private apartment adjacent to the prison British actor Christopher Lee, you know him, you love him, Dracula, of course, his most famous part, and Sauron was 17 at the time, and he witnessed this. He actually later went on to play headsman Charles Henri Sanson in a French TV drama about the French Revolution. And and that that's the person who did the beheadings, and his character made uh, prolific use of the guillotine, which, now that you stop and, and you think about it and you know about this, it's rather chilling because um, Christopher Lee probably could draw from that experience. And I am willing to go deeper into this case if you would like to. I am not today. But is your appetite wetted? Because that's pretty, pretty crazy. There are books about this, by the way, if you would like to look into them. Eugene Wiedemann, W-E-I-D-M-A-N-N. One is called *Beau Tenebres. That means beautiful darkness. La Pulsion du Mal de Jeanne Weidman. The Impulse to Evil of Eugene Weidman. It's 412 pages. Probably going to be in French. You might be able to find a translation. Comments on Cain. And that is by F. Tennyson. Jesse. This is Eugene Weidman, a study in (laughs) Brujaha. I will share some uh, photographs on my social medias that and in case you're not familiar with a guillotine I think most people are but it is it is an apparatus that was designed specifically to behead people it's a tall upright frame in which you have a weighted angled blade raised up and suspended the condemned person is secured with stocks at the bottom of the frame with uh, the your neck is directly below the blade So then the blade is released so that it's supposed to fall very quickly, forcefully and be a clean, quick death and your head falls into a basket below. It was actually done to Marie Antoinette, 1793. From the first use of the guillotine, there was debate whether or not it always provided this swift death though. Previous methods of execution intended to be painful, so there was little concern about the level of suffering in in other words you know people were like yeah you deserve it i don't care and the guillotine being invented specifically to be humane the issue of pain then was actually seriously considered you know as opposed to before that there was a question of consciousness following decapitation it was a big topic of discussion during the guillotine's use this uh following report was written by dr biru who experimented with the head of a condemned prisoner by the name of Henri Langieu on 28th June 1905. Quote, "Here then is what I was able to note immediately after the decapitation. The eyelids and lips of the guillotined man worked in irregularly rhythmic contractions for about 5 or 6 seconds." This phenomena has been remarked by all those finding themselves in the same conditions as myself for observing what happens after the severing of the neck I waited for several seconds the spasmodic movements ceased it was then that I called in a strong sharp voice langil I saw the eyelids slowly lift up without any spasmodic contractions I insist advisedly on this peculiarity but with an even movement Quite distinct and normal, such as happens in everyday life, with people awakened or torn from their thoughts. Next, Langille's eyes very definitely fixed themselves on mine and the pupils focused themselves. I was not, then, dealing with the sort of vague, dull look without any expression that can be observed any day in dying people to whom one speaks. I was dealing with undeniably living eyes which were looking at me after several seconds, though the eyes closed again. It was at that point that I called out again, and once more, without any spasm, spasm, slowly the eyelids lifted, and undeniably living eyes fixed themselves on mine, with perhaps even more penetration than the first time. Then there was a further closing of the eyelids, but now less complete. I attempted the effect of a third call, there was no further movement, and the eyes took on the glazed wo- look which they have in the dead. How many of you pictured that? Because that is creepy. Now, I don't know. We can look up the science of this. I don't know that that means that the head was still living or that the person was still conscious of anything. Or if this is just normal spasms after something like that. If you heard my Frankenstein episode way back, there are a lot of explanations for why a body would keep doing that. But it's quite something to hear a first-hand account from Clear back in 1905. He paints quite the picture. It's it's pretty creepy. Now I mentioned briefly that that was the last that there were other executions done by guillotine. They were just done in private. The last official, from what I found, execution by guillotine, even in private, was in 1977. And hopefully I will pronounce these things properly. Uh, Hamida. John Duby was uh, a Tunisian immigrant, and he was the last victim of a guillotine execution. That's 38 years after Eugene Wiedemann's uh, public beheading, and the uh, Hamida was executed September 10th, 1977. So Hamida John Duby was a Tunisian immigrant, as I said, to France, and was found guilty of kidnapping, torture, and murder of his girlfriend. French citizen Elizabeth Basquet. after he was sentenced to death in February 1977 he did appeal twice but it got him nowhere it was 440 a.m. September 10th 1977 in the courtyard of Balmette prison in Marseille once the blade fell there it was the final execution by guillotine of anyone by the time of this execution, both public and government support for beheadings and capital punishment in general had been dwindling, and the macabre details of Hamida's death made it worse. According to reports that eventually went public, a doctor present at the execution testified that Dubai remained responsive for about 30 seconds after decapitation. Within four years, capital punishment didn't exist at all anymore no no executions period so even though it was highly publicized it was behind closed doors thank God nobody saw it because if he was still opening his eyes and stuff as the quote from the other guy in 1905 uh, was saying that's hideous and I can imagine it would have caused quite the riots that's that's just that's just crazy to me can you imagine can you imagine I can't. Well, I can't actually. That's why I'm a writer. (laughs) Now something else, a completely different sort of story that I wanted to share with you today. Have you heard of the Galapagos Affair? There is actually a documentary right now, though it's it's a paid, I'd have to pay for it. I'm considering watching it. Uh, Satan Came to Eden or the Galapagos Affair. Have you heard of this? Maybe not. Well, let's get a timeline here from com. First of all, the Galapagos Islands are a small chain of islands in the Pacific Ocean off the western coast of Ecuador. They are rocky, dry, and hot and home to many interesting species of animals that you can find nowhere else. You've you've probably heard of it because of Charles Darwin, of course. They are very well known for the uh, Galapagos finches, and that's what inspired Darwin's theory of evolution. They are now quite the tourist attraction and normally sleepy and uneventful they did capture the world's attention they were prior to being a tourist attraction I should say you know just not a lot of people know about them they were rugged and uninhabited but they did capture the world's attention in 1934 because they became the site of an international scandal of sex and murder got it let's do a quick little timeline Friedrich Ritter and Dory Strzok arrived in 1929. They moved to the islands, feeling they need to uh, start over in a faraway place. He was a doctor, and he brought actually one of his patients, and that's Dory. Apparently, he was treating her for um, spinal, I forgot now if it was spinal meningitis, something to do with her spine. I'll get back to that. And they left behind spouses, so they, they were running off together. They set up a homestead on Floriana Island, which is one of the islands in the Galapagos. Worked very hard, you know, moving lava rocks, planting fruits and vegetables, and raised chickens. And they kind of became international celebrities even for that. You know, here they are, this rugged doctor and his lover, living off this faraway island, away from civilization, etc. And some people did actually come to visit them. And some wanted to stay, but the uh, the life on the island was much too hard for them, so they didn't. Still, enter the Whitmers in 1931. Heinz Whitmer with his teenage son and pregnant wife, Margaret, arrived in the islands. They stayed and they set up a homestead with a little bit of help from Dr. Ritter. Once they were established, they apparently had very little contact with each other, the families, and they seemed to you know, prefer it to be that way. So everybody's doing their rugged, you know, survivalist sort of thing out there. And then we get to the infamous Baroness, as she was called. So it was not long after the Whitmers that four more people arrived. And they were led by Eloise Grueborn de Wagner-Basquet, who was known as the Baroness. She's a very attractive Austrian, and she was accompanied by two German lovers Robert Philipson and Rudolf Lorenz. And then there was Ecuadorian Manuel Valdiviso, who presumably was their worker, you know, hired to do all the work for them. She was apparently quite flamboyant. She set up her small homestead and named it Hacienda Paradis. And she announced plans to build a grand hotel. And I'm guessing that didn't go over too well with the other people who just wanted to live out in their quiet, little, rugged whatever. Right? Right. This Baroness made up elaborate grand stories to tell visiting yacht captains. Uh, she, she walked around wearing a pistol and a whip. She's said to have seduced the governor of Galapagos and anointed herself the Queen of Floriana yachts went out of their way to visit floriana because of her apparently and everyone sailing in the pacific wanted to boast of an encounter with the baroness she did not however get along well with the others who who were already living there namely the whitmers you know who ignored her and dr ritter who despised her so the situation deteriorates Lorenz uh, fell out of favor. Philipson started beating him. That is, uh, Those are the lovers, so we got a lover's quarrel going on. Lorenz started spending a lot of time with the Whitmers until the Baroness would come and get him. Then there was a prolonged drought, and Ritter and Strock began to, quar- to quarrel. Ritter and the Whitmers became angry when they started to suspect that the Baroness was stealing their mail, and saying bad things about them to the visitors. And all of this would get repeated in the international press. So their reputations, they're being defamed. Things got really petty Betty Petty McBetty. And Philipson stole Ritter's donkey. And turned it loose in the Whitmer's garden. And then Hines shot it in the morning because he thought it was feral. It <laughs> just... We got the the very definition of bad neighbors here, okay? By March 27, 1934, Baroness and one of her lovers, Philipson, disappeared. According to Margaret Whitmer, the Baroness appeared at the Whitmer home and said that some friends had arrived on a yacht and were taking them to Tahiti. She said she left everything they weren't taking with them to Lawrence, the one who was previously being beat, right? The other lover. Well, we're gonna leave all this stuff with him so the Baroness and Philipson departed that very day and they were never heard from again there are problems with the Whitmer story no one else remembers any ship coming in that week and the Baroness and Whitmer never turned up in Tahiti now oops that's a that's a miswriting sorry uh, Whitmer would not have been in Tahiti it was Philipson they also left behind most of their things you know uh, the items that the Baroness would have wanted even on a short journey. Probably toiletries, different little articles of clothing, this and that. Strauch and Ritter apparently believed that the two were murdered by Lorenz and that the Whitmers helped cover it up. This is just getting all kinds of convoluted. Strack also believed that the bodies were burned. Why would you know that, you know? As the acacia wood, which is available on the island burns hot enough to destroy even bone. Now, why would she think that? Why would she think that, right? Now, the other lover, though, disappears. He was, uh, that's Lorenz, that supposedly they left everything to him, right? So he was in a hurry to get out of Galapagos, and he convinced a Norwegian fisherman named Negred to take him first to Santa Cruz Island and from there to San Cristobal Island, where he would then catch a ferry to Guayaquil. They made it to Santa Cruz, but disappeared between Santa Cruz and San Cristobal. Months later, mummified, desiccated bodies of both men were found on Marchena Island. No clue how they got there. No one knows. Marchena is also in the northern part of the uh, archipelago, so it's not anywhere near Santa Cruz or San Cristobal. This weirdness didn't end there, my friends. It did not end there. And thank you again, (laughs) ThoughtCO.com, for this article. November of this same year, Dr. Ritter died. The the OG homesteader, right? The OG homesteader from what I saw, too. They like to walk around naked. They like to hang out in their home naked, naked, as is their prerogative from what uh, other... Stuff I briefly saw, they did put on clothes when people visited. They did wear boots uh, when walking around, though, because apparently the ground. They wanted to be total nudists, but walking around uh, really cut up their feet. I mean, these are the sort of details that they were telling about these people. There's photographs, too, which, again, I will share at uh, Pinky underscore podcast on Instagram. But so Dr. Ritter dies supposedly from food poisoning due to eating uh, poorly preserved chicken. They, re- they raise chickens, remember. Now, some people think this is odd because Ritter is a vegetarian, although maybe not a strict one, but he's supposed to be a vegetarian. And being a veteran of living there on the island, they figured he would be able to know if something had gone bad or gone off with the chicken. But I don't know if he was a vegetarian. Maybe not, right? I don't know. So a lot of people, though, believe that Strzok, his own lover, had poisoned him because apparently he wasn't treating her very well. This is according to whoever, though. Uh, According to to Margaret Whitmer, Richard Richard himself blamed Strzok. And Whitmer wrote that he cursed her in his dying words. So Whitmer, a lot of this stuff I think uh, comes from Margaret Whitmer, who they were part of the second people, the group, to come and settle, right? And some people think she's an unreliable witness, but I, uh, if I remember correctly, she might be the only witness they have, the only narration of anything on that island at the time. So now you have three people dead, two missing over the course of a few months. And the Galapagos affair, as it became known has puzzled historians and visitors to the islands ever since none of these mysteries have been solved the baroness and philipson never turned up dr ritter's death is officially listed as an accident so no one's probably even investigating that and no one has any clue how nigrid and lorenz got to Marchena, mummified and desiccated The Whitmers themselves remained on the islands and became very wealthy years later when tourism boomed and their descendants still own valuable land and businesses there. Dory Strach returned to Germany and wrote a book. So okay there we go there is another quote unquote witness there's another surviving person well well was who wrote a book about it and it apparently contains a lot of uh, sordid details Or tales of the Galapagos affair but she also does convey um, a look at the hard life of early settlers so Margaret Whitmer who was the last of those who really knew what happened stuck to her story about the Baroness going to Tahiti until her own death in 2000 she often hinted that she knew more than she was telling but it's hard to say whether or not she really did or maybe she just uh, liked to tantalize the tourists, you know, with innuendos and tales. And Strzok's book doesn't really shed light on things. Uh, Dory Strock is adamant that Lorenz killed the Baroness and Philipson, but has no proof other than her own and supposedly her deceased lover's gut feelings. I mean, this is like a soap opera, y'all. Now, I have shared with you two crazy little stories One of them of course is, is solved. We know who did what, but the Galapagos one. And again, the uh, documentary is Satan came to Eden. You can find that to rent. Like if you have Xfinity or other channels, don't it, I don't think it was on Amazon prime. I have to look again, but if you would like me to get deeper into that, I'm not opposed to it. I might consider watching the documentary or you can follow up on yourself. But I just think that is a crazy little story and a very confusing little story. Okay. Okay. I knew there was something else I was... I did find a little more in-depth about it. This is uh, GalapagosIslands.com. I lost it, and that's why I was going to start to close the podcast, but here we go. I am going to give you another version of this that has more details and is less just a quickie timeline. In 1929, the first settlers to arrive in Floriana Island were Dr. Friedrich Ritter and his lover, Doris Strauch. Now, these two met in Germany during her treatment for multiple sclerosis. That's what I was trying to remember. They fell in love, and they decided to run away together to uh, the remote Galapagos Islands to begin a new life. They were rather eccentric, you know, their life on the island. They were fans of Nietzsche, and they wanted to establish a utopia on Floriana Island. They were vegetarians who cultivated their food in their garden and lived as nudists, as I touched upon before. It's said that Dr. Ritter preemptively removed his teeth before coming to Galapagos to avoid dental problems. Dory's teeth were pulled out with garden tools on Floriana after they began to rot. The rumor is that they shared a pair of steel dentures after that that Ritter had made. Oh, so their unorthodox way of life attracted a lot of attention from the international press because there were passengers on passing boats that would stop at Post Office Bay and then they would report about the unusual settlers. Ritter's and Strock's stories were published in newspapers around the world and inspired the other German couple to run off to Floriana and escape the unfavorable conditions of post-World War I Germany. And that was Heinz and Margaret Whitmer. They brought their teenage son, as I told you, and his name was Harry, and this is in 1932, and they wanted to homestead on the island. Margaret was pregnant, and her son, Rolf, would be born in a cave on the island, and he is the first person, then, to have been born on Floriana. Dory and Margaret didn't seem to get along from the beginning, and the Whitmers were not allowed to homestead next to Richard and Strzok. The Whitmers settled at first in a cave, which was said to be an old pirate hideout, but then they later built a house. Respecting each other's space, the two groups did seem to get on by th- those standards, with no contention between each other. Not friendly terms, maybe, but they kind of avoided each other. But it was in 1933 when it got weird, as I kind of touched upon before. The eccentric and outright bizarre self-proclaimed Baroness Eloise Levon, de Wagner-Basquet arrived with her two lovers Rudolf Lorenz and Robert Philipson and I, I told you all this before uh, again their man servant Manuel Valdevezio so unlike Ritter and Strock, and the witchmers who had come to the Galapagos to reconnect with nature this Baroness was preoccupied with money fame sex <laughs> and establishing that luxury luxury tourist resort on the island so so far this all checks out the Baroness caused a lot of friction among the other settlers she proclaimed herself the empress of Floriana. Uh, this is verifies that she carried around the whip and the pistol, and she acted as an authoritarian figure on the island. In addition to her outlandish ways, quote, she stole supplies from the other settlers. She also once shot a visitor to the island when she was on a hunting trip, allegedly an accident, and she quickly turned away others who came to the island. There were a pair of honeymooners who came ashore in Floriana after mistakenly drifting off course from another island, and the baroness refused to help them and sent them back out to sea. Not very polite. Now, she didn't mind the attention that she got from reporters and millionaires, you know, in their yachts, who would stop by. And she made up lies about Ritter, which further exacerbated the clash between them, of course. And she seduced yacht captains and various male passengers aboard the visiting boats. (laughs) Her scandalous lifestyle and her announcement in the international press about her plans for this luxury resort attracted even more yachts. Now the Whitmers, for the most part, made sure that they had little interaction with the Baroness and her entourage. They lived on the other side of the island. Ritter, on the other hand, was infuriated, with the Baroness bad-mouthing him, and he did not conceal his hatred for her, and he blamed her for ruining the isolationist lifestyle that he and Doré had sought to live in the first place when they arrived. Other settlers were fed up with the uh, baroness's behavior, and they reportedly sent word to the governor of Galapagos, who went to Floriana to investigate the situation, and ended up being seduced by the Baroness. So he left the island with nothing bad to say about her. Must have been a good time. She had a lot of domestic drama, as I touched upon. Lorenz and Philipson began to fight with each other, and the Baroness and Philipson would gang up on Lorenz. He sometimes ran away and stayed with the Whitmers for days until the Baroness went to drag him back. 27th March, 1934 is when the Baroness and Philipson mysteriously vanished. We covered that one. It was Margaret Whitmer who claimed that the Baroness told her that her millionaire friends were taking her and Philipson on their yacht to Tahiti. But the story doesn't match up, as we said. Dori Strauch claimed that Lorenz murdered the Baroness and Philipson and that the Whitmers helped cover it up. So she's pointing a finger at everybody. This is getting a lot more clear. She was pointing a finger at everybody. And then Margaret Whitmer is talking about Ritter's hatred of the Baroness and how he and Lorenz suspiciously split up the possessions they left behind. Everybody pointing fingers at everybody. (laughs) So, Valdivisio ran off on the very next boat to visit Floriana and seemingly returned to mainland Ecuador. And that's where we get the Norwegian fisherman, Niggerud, to take him to San Cristobal. But of course that didn't happen. They did buy supplies in Santa Cruz. They got part way. They got part way. But they vanished when they left Santa Cruz. The, the, that mummified body thing is still kind of tripping me up. That's just weird. And Friedrich Ritter died, we know that. Food poisoning, spoiled chicken. Um, Dory Strock, his lover, if you recall all these names, claimed that drought on the island led to vegetables being scarce. And so that's why she and Ritter boiled some dead chickens they had found. Well, that was a very bad idea, if that's true. The Witchmers thought that that was strange and suspicious. The fact, especially that um, he died. Frederick Richard died. But Dory Struck was perfectly fine. And that is interesting if she ate the chicken as well. Sure, she might have had a stronger constitution, but it's interesting. It's interesting. So the memoirs that they wrote, Dory Strzok and Margaret Whitmer, they do write about being at Ritter's bedside when he died. And their accounts of what happened are completely different. Strouk writes about a loving exchange of tenderness at Richter's deathbed, while Whitmer claims that he glared at Strzok with hatred and wrote his last sentence, I curse you with my dying breath in the last moment of his life. So these two women still hate each other's guts right up until the very end. Doris Strock went back to Germany after Ritter's death. She died in 1943. Witmer stayed on Floriana and made a fortune, as I told you. Told you their descendants still live there. And Margaret herself died on the island in, in 2000. And she was 96 years old. So she made it past everybody. <laughs> she made it past everybody. And she never changed her story. And there you have a little more in-depth on that. Thank you, GalapagosIslands.com. What do you think about this weirdness? That is such a weird, crazy story. As the island turns. I think that's all I'm going to tell you for this week's episode. I know they've been a little sparse lately. And also, if anybody noticed, I was actually only doing them every two weeks. But I decided to give you another one for this Friday. I'm... Besides the new novel coming out, *Dark Wings*, by the way, urban fantasy, male male romance. Please find it on Amazon.com. I'm I'm really proud of this book, and it's doing fairly well on Kindle Unlimited. You can you can read it quote unquote for free even. Uh, if you do, let me know how you liked it. Anyway, I I'm gonna get personal for just a moment and say that I, I'm I've been really struggling with lack of motivation and you know it's really easy to call yourself lazy but i think it's it's much much deeper to something into mental health and depression and i'm not 100% certain what it is but i'm struggling and if anyone can relate you know i would love for you to just hit me up and say hi or tell me chin up okay i'm not necessarily looking for advice please don't do that just bearing myself for a moment here to say that Probably some of the things I'm doing online instead of doing things offline, which I should be, are just distractions from my mental state. But I I will prevail, right? Usually I do. Uh, I started up my Patreon again. I don't know. I, I would love to post a bunch of stuff on there, but people weren't really... I know we're all broke right now, I suppose. But if you would like to visit that, that would be great. And buy my books Find me at pinky swearpress.com, that's my official website. Find me on Twitter at Podpinky and Instagram pinky underscore podcasts. And I hope you're all doing well out there and happy summer. Happy summer. Oh, and happy full moon day. Today is the full moon. Woohoo! Talk to you next time. Pa